What would you build if you could treat your network infrastructure programmatically? That's what we're going to consider in today's sponsored heavy networking episode with Nokia. Nokia's SR Linux is infrastructure as code friendly, and their NetOps development kit allows you to think of the network as data models. And on that platform, you can build all sorts of things. Like what? Well, stay tuned and we're going to explain. We're going to get into uh, three different use cases here, but at least one teaser for you a VXLAN proxy. And if you have no idea what that is, your brain might pop a little when you hear about it because mine did as we were prepping for the show. Our guest today is Bruce Wallace, Senior Director of Product Management in Data Center Switching at Nokia. Welcome, Bruce, or should I say welcome back? Because Bruce, you've been on heavy networking before. In episode 559, we discussed Nokia SR Linux architecture, explaining it as a ground up, clean site network operating system. So, Bruce, we should start there. Uh, why don't you jump in and give us a quick review of why I should care about SR Linux? And, uh, and I guess you got to mention Nokia's NetApp development kit along the way as you're reviewing for us. Yeah, thanks, Ethan, and uh, thanks for uh, for having us back. So yeah, we uh, we started with Estra Linux with a, a pretty unique design philosophy. I think you know we started with the concept that you know typical NOSes have been quite closed in the in the past and. Open doesn't necessarily mean open source. I know there's kind of a, a can of worms we can uh, we can go into there, and maybe we will. But really, we wanted to try and build things a little bit differently. And there's so there's a few general kind of design philosophies that we uh, that we started to uh, to take to heart as we were building this thing. The first was, you know, we're in this world now where automation in general for data centers is mostly uh, a solved problem, at least from a config perspective. And we'll get into how the uh, the NetOps development kit or the NDK can help solve for some of that going forwards on the operation side. But we wanted to build in a way that, you know, we were consuming frameworks that we opened up for our customers. You know, the uh, the tooling, the ecosystem that surrounds the data center is kind of perpetually in motion. So in order for the NOS to adapt to that ecosystem and not just become stagnant in it, the NOS itself needs to maintain some change as it goes through its lifecycle in the network. And that's really what we were trying to accomplish with SR Linux and some of the, the tooling, the NTK, some of this modular management architecture that we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll get into. We often talk about the SDN, like the overlay, the tools, the software-defined infrastructure and, and the things that we... You know, but we also forget that the levers that we pull on the devices, sometimes it gets lost in the discussion that the devices themselves and the operating system that run on it still needs to have levers of a certain cadence. So the APIs, the ability to sustain high rates of telemetry, if that's relevant to your use case, or the ability to have lots of configuration APIs, like configuring an eVPN, it seems to get not just more complex, but exponentially more complex every other week. Like you were talking about, <laughs> one of the things we're going to talk about today is some very weird corner cases for eVPN. And to do that, you need to have a NOS that is iterating uh, over time. And yet historically, NOSs have not iterated at speed. So building a NOS to iterate rapidly, implement features in such a way that I can actually trust you to be upgradable is is a new idea, funnily enough. Yeah, 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 it really is. I mean, We've started to forget about the fabrics as a lot of this functionality moves closer and closer to the compute stack, right? But they're yeah. they're still there. They're pro still providing a very very necessary service in our in our data centers, and yeah, they have been moderately stagnant over over the last few years. And the general architecture of those nozzles hasn't really been able to keep the rate of change or the the cadence that we're seeing on the compute stack. So, Bruce, can I ask you to defend a point you made is uh, along these lines? You said automation is pretty much a solved problem. 
but it isn't mm-hmm. unless you've got a really tightly <laughs> scoped problem. So how do you mean automation is solved? Yeah, so I think uh, uh, solved in the sense that not everyone has adopted the solutions, but that there are a lot of solutions out there, right? The amount of tooling around general configuration automation, which is really what I was uh, speaking to, is okay. I'm trying to build a service. I'm trying to automate the underlay. I'm trying to simply you know, push down some eBGP configuration. These are the things that I think are very, very important and are things that were kind of the initial focus of the automation wave, as it, as it were. And I think those are mostly solved. You know, we have, and, and it's been assisted actually quite a bit by, I would say, the homogenous design that we're starting to collapse onto in data center. You know, we all have these eBGP clo designs for the most part, or at least that's what we're building next. So rather than having, you know, a ton of different uh, cookie cutters that you need to try and tune a bunch of knobs on, we're mostly coalescing on a single design that we deploy everywhere. Now, that could change in the future, of course. I don't know how long this design is going to stick around, but it has stuck around for a little while. And so the problem statement has gotten smaller and the automation stack, I guess, simpler in trying to solve that problem. And I think there's definitely people that are going, wait, why are we doing eBGP in the data center again? They're, they're, that question is <laughs> popping up from time to time. But but I guess yep. from your perspective, yep. if we're going to talk about you know the SR Linux take on it, in a sense that doesn't matter to you because of the way you've built that, right? Indeed, yeah. So there's a few things we've done, I think, that are are pretty unique to us. One is we designed using model-driven management right from the get-go. And I know that in and of itself is not new. There are nozzles out there that have been doing model-driven management. Uh, You know, a bunch of our competitors, of course, have uh, solutions around model-driven management. Um, What we've done, I think, that is unique is rather than having kind of this big monolithic schema um, that the NOS gets represented by and is versioned to every single release, we break that schema up into kind of its discrete entities. So our BGP stack has its own configuration schema, our OSPF stack, its own configuration schema. And we do this in such a way that those applications can be iterated, upgraded, restarted. And the northbound layer doesn't really know because they're all being kind of amalgamated into kind of this uniform API. So. I like to draw comparisons because I think for those of us who uh, have some experience on the application world to the concept of uh, custom resource descriptors in uh, in Kubernetes in that you have a uniform API, so your mechanism for accessing the system doesn't change, but the objects that you're interacting with can come, they can go, they can be iterated on, they can be upgraded. We've basically introduced that concept at a NOS layer for every single one of routing protocols, you know, AAA, uh, OAM, any NOS function functions the same way in our device as you would see in, in kind of a Kubernetes application world. Well, it sounds like what you're describing is our IETF Yang models or open config Yang models. Is that true or have you gone in a different direction with your schemas? So we are a, a little bit different. We are, we are introducing open config support because, of course, the, the multi-vendor wave and you would have seen during our launch that a lot of our engagement is in kind of the hyperscaler space who very much have a multi-vendor strategy. So open configism is very important to us and we're introducing support for that. But in our case, all of our APIs are, are model-driven and we wanted to follow that same approach for the CLI. And I know this is a, a hot topic because who uses CLI, CLI anymore, right? Well, <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice premise, but the reality is a lot of people still do. So rather than having kind of a CLI that had no connection with the data models, we wanted to try and design the data models for human readability as well as kind of machine readability. So you can think of our our native models as being open config light. 
We remove a bunch of kind of uh, config containers, state containers, things that humans don't care about, and a bunch of kind of the surrounding containers, you know, rather than interfaces, interface, sub-interfaces. In OC, we have just interface, sub-interface. So we kind of compress the data model down for a little bit more readability for a human because our, our CLI, which uh, you know I'll, I'll throw in is entirely open source, written in Python, extendable by our customers, is all driven by those same data models. So you get a uniform experience no matter how you talk to the device. So it's not like you've strapped an API on top of the CLI, which is how some of the older operating systems worked. It's very much there's an underlying model and the model can be accessed via a CLI, which updates the model or an API, which updates the model. And that also means you've got the ability to add and delete APIs because it's not like the API is attached to a proprietary database underneath it's attached to a model. So there's an abstraction between So the CLI just becomes another API. Exactly. Yeah. A finger defined API, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. (laughs) And so we do have uh, kind of plugins because you know, even just having a model, there's things like, how do you represent a ping in a model, right? So there are plugins that we add into the CLI for some of those kind of operational tasks. And we've seen a lot of our customers add some really, really interesting CLI plugins that kind of phone home to databases, build topology externally of the device, compare it to topology locally on the device using LLDP and the data model we exposed there. So there's some really interesting pieces that can be built using the CLI, but in essence, it really is just another API into the system. And it builds some of that muscle memory for what the underlying data model looks like. Now, we've talked about the modularity here uh, built around these data models, which, if I remember right from our earlier conversations about SR Linux, we have a microservices architecture, too. In other words, it's not a monolithic NOS. I'm kind of loading in modules depending on what I need to run. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And this, I think, where we're starting to lean into some of where the, uh, the NetOps development kit or the NDK can start to bring value. So... As you rightfully said, everything in the in the NOS, when you kind of load up SR Linux, you're going to see a ton of services, right? For for very discrete functional boundaries in the system. And that that kind of design is promoted everywhere. If we're adding a new piece of functionality that doesn't rightfully belong, you know, alongside BGP, we don't have a monolithic routing daemon. BGP is its own process, OSPF is its own process, ISIS mm. is its own process. And they all have their own management stack or their own management model, if you will. So when we start thinking around how do we extend this, how do we maintain kind of longevity of the solution and enable it to change, we wanted this all to be pluggable. So you could rip out BGP, upgrade it, put it back in, the data model would kind of natively update and you're, you're away to the races again, all whilst doing that without outage, which is a big thing we're, we're working on at the moment. So when we start to think of how customers may extend the solution, because I mentioned kind of this tooling ecosystem that surrounds the data center, typically on the application world, but we're starting to see more and more of that kind of lean into the NOS. This is why we're all adopting Linux as kind of our underlying architecture. You get access to all these incredible kind of configuration tool chains. They need a way of integrating natively into the NOS and more importantly, being managed as if they weren't kind of aliens in the system. So this is really what we were trying to solve with the NDK, allowing customers to build applications or consume applications that have already been built. Most of these exist on, on GitHub now and have their those applications be bundled with their own Yang model and have that Yang model be exposed into the same schema that all the rest of the system is using. So they kind of appear like native extensions. You can do on-chain telemetry to them. You can configure them using our transaction-based configuration. So you know you can build candidates, you can commit them, you can roll them back. And these are for applications that didn't exist when the system was started up, weren't developed by Nokia, 
and have just been added to the system to provide either simple operational automation or, as, as you pointed out in the intro, Ethan, some, some interesting use cases around VXLAN and interop. Yeah, we you know, we got to get to that, but I got to ask you this first. You just said something really important there that hit me that has not hit me before. Um, I can build my own Yang models based around my own operations and what my unique requirements are. That was a point you were just making, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, okay. So, so as a, as a, as an old school SNMP guy, you're not out there <laughs> writing your own SNMP MIBs and OIDs to do the thing, whatever it is. You're yeah. using whatever the vendor gives you, and uh, you know, parsing through the description libraries to find out what the numbers are and what they mean. But you're definitely mm -hmm. not writing your own. What, what what you're saying here is I can build based on my own org, my own Yang models, plug them in to SR Linux and leverage the NDK and build an application that's custom from my organization, but still approaching it in this very standardized, predictable way as Yang is a well-known thing. Absolutely. That's exactly what the NDK gives you. And we've seen a ton of really cool use cases built on top of this. And the big thing we, we see people gaining from this is they gain the management infrastructure. So the NDK provides a, a bunch of, you know, gRPC protobuf based APIs towards these applications. So it allows you to kind of add routes to the system, to monitor change in the system if you don't want to go through our GNMI interface. But where we really see the benefit is we extend all of that management infrastructure, the ability to kind of extend the Yang model, the ability to do config transactions, streaming telemetry, all of that is kind of provided for you using the NDK. So your application isn't unmanaged anymore. You load it into the system, it populates its own state model, it can be configured natively using all of our model-driven APIs. And you now can stream telemetry out to some northbound entity to understand what that application is doing, what state it's currently in, is it in a good state, what has it done to the system? You can publish basically anything you want into the system state. And you've made it fairly easy to develop on all this stuff too. I mean, you're offering SR Linux, as a, there's a public container image out there for it now, yeah? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we noticed this when we launched the NDK that there's a lot of people that wanted to get their hands on, but then they've got to kind of call a sales team. And sometimes they aren't initially one of our customers. You go through that whole rigmarole. So instead, we opted to publish our container image for SR Linux, the latest version and all versions that have been released to date onto the GitHub container registry. So absolutely no paywalls, no registration walls. We have no idea who's accessing it, but Anybody who wants to kind of get started with SR Linux just to get some familiarity or I guess want to develop applications against it, against the NDK and the, uh, the infrastructure we've built, can do without making a phone call or even sending an email. Well, Bruce, I want to get into to our use cases. We've kind of reviewed a lot of the architecture of SR Linux. We, we have some context for what the NDK is doing for us. We get the importance of the data models and the fact that I can do my own data models, which is still churning in my brain. That, that's a thing. <laughs> that, that is very interesting. That's a thing. Yeah. Um, but we've got some, let, let's talk through three different use cases here for NDK. And then the first one that I want you to introduce for us is this uh, story about Kay Butler. Ah, uh, yes. Okay, Butler. So we did, uh, we did demo this back at Networking Field Day 25. So there's a, you know, there's a video if you want to go see a demo, I recommend going and uh, checking it out. But what K Butler is really doing is um, trying to bring or contextualize some of the application world, some of that surrounding compute ecosystem into the network operating system. So we found, uh, you know, we had one customer that was dealing with the, the, the common problem we all deal with in data centers. You have the application team and you have the network team and the, the two try not to talk to each other ever. <laughs> so... <laughs> uh -huh. so what we were trying to do here, um, I think we did a, a good job of accomplish, accomplishing it, is bringing in some of the application state, as it were, 
um, into the network. So what Kbutler is really doing is uh, listening to a Kubernetes cluster and listening for any services that are being spun up. So if you've ever run a uh, on-prem Kubernetes cluster, you have a ton of different mechanisms for trying to manage services. Um, and one of the solutions is around just advertising service IPs to the fabric, along with a bunch of next hops, which represent the computes that those services live on. So middle LB is a good example of, uh, of one way to solve for this, but there's no real context of what those routes are, right? You just see a service IP, you don't know what the service is, you don't know which endpoints you're meant to receive from a network perspective. Let's say you see three, but really there's five computes that are serving the service. So you're missing a lot of kind of the application context in the network. So what Kbutler was doing was listening for events and uh, Kubernetes just doing a watch on the Kubernetes API, listening for services being created, the endpoints that support those services or the pods that support those services and the host that they live on and doing a bunch of correlation in the network with the FIB on the local device to actually build kind of an operational state for the service from a networking perspective. So, okay. Okay. So we got, we had service discovery in, in Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. We can listen to that service discovery and understand what all is out there. But then yeah. you just said, and, and now you're doing what you're injecting routes into the FIB or, or basically a forwarding table entry into the FIB in some way. Not so much. So it isn't so much around changing anything on the device. It's about figuring out this IP address that I received over, you know, a BGP advertisement is relating to this Nginx service. And mm. Kubernetes is telling me that this Nginx service is supported by these five pods, which live on these five different computes. So there's kind of a layer of indirection in Kubernetes. Mm. And then making sure that we have routes in the FIB, not only for the service IP, because that's important, of course, but that the ECMP set that we see for the service is the same five hosts that Kubernetes told us it should be. So there's kind of some correlation with the application world saying, these are the IP addresses that support the service. And the network, which is saying, yes, I have all five of those IP addresses. They're part of the ECMP set. And here are the different hosts that they that they live on. Got it. Okay. Now there's integration. Now there's knowledge between the, the network and Kubernetes in a very specific way. And we've seen some of that stuff on, uh, like back in the day, you do, you do some vSphere integration and you could mm -hmm. connect in and then you could see on your switch what exactly you're talking to in the vSphere world and make a lot of intelligent monitoring and inferences around that. So this isn't about... Uh, Oh, making it more efficient to push data across the, the wire faster or something. But now we do have knowledge between the two layers as opposed to whatever. I'm just forwarding packets, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, we were getting to the point of actually adding in some kind of data plane probing. So you could actually test ACLs, make sure that because you, you know the TCP port or UDP port the service lives on as well. Kubernetes tells you that. So being able to probe the data path and make sure that Yes, packets are actually making it to the service from my point of view. So that's like synthetic testing. You could exactly. actually create your own synthetic probes and put them in the switch and say, oh, well, Kubernetes is telling me that these containers exist. The question is, can I actually reach them from the switch, which is a valid test you might want to run mm -hmm. because the service mesh might not, right? Yeah. It might, might be misconfigured. It might be broken. You might have some sort of security policy and you want to be able to perhaps validate that the security policy is blocking random access from the zero, you know, VLAN one into the, should be existing some micro segment of some sort, right? Yeah. And so you might want to contain, there's not just the positive case, is it up? Can I connect to it? But the reverse case, which is, can I not, which is a security case, I should yep. not be able to. So you could write those probes into your SDN, SDI, SDX 
overlay and say, every time I add a container, I'm going to add a probe in my switch infrastructure that probes to detect if I can reach these. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So now your application team, when they kind of call up the networking team and they say, hey, my Nginx service isn't working properly. Only four of my five uh, kind of available pods is, is seeing traffic. The networking guy is like, what, what the hell is an Nginx service? I don't know what that is. <laughs> now he actually has a data model that he can interact with on the device that's telling him, here are the endpoints that are meant to support the service. Are they all available in the FIB? Yes or no. So you get a kind of nice upper state for each one of those uh, one of those endpoints. And then is the service in a degraded state? Is in all of those endpoints are available from this specific device's perspective, or is there some issue? And because it's all exposed in this own app's data model, which we can stream out using GNMI, you can kind of visualize this on Grafana using time series databases, all that good stuff. Um, so yeah, it's just bringing some of that context into the network, adding some checks to make sure things work. Well, there's another piece of this, Bruce, to me from a Kubernetes perspective, which is ephemerality. So if something, I'm standing up retiring pods, maybe, um, as that goes along and as that changes over time, I don't, it depends on your environment, how much churn there'll be. But when there is inevitably that churn, my network infrastructure now is going to know that uh, as things change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's getting constantly updated because it's doing watches on uh, on the Kubernetes API. So and a super simple use case, right? A super simple use case that adds a lot of value to the networking team as they try and solve application level problems, which typically these things are. A network guy just cares about routes. Am I forwarding traffic to the service? Yeah, I am. I've got a route. Here's some next hops. When really maybe one of those next hops has an ACL that's blocking it. Maybe two of them aren't even in the FIB for whatever reason. There's a routing policy or some other reason that they weren't viable. So bringing some of that context into the networking world to help solve some of these kind of operationally taxing problems for the network team. Which is where, as a network engineer, you can bring the most valuable, it, uh, most value to your organization. It's lovely to say, I'm forwarding the packets. It's not my problem. Leave me alone. Absolutely. That's, you know, whatever. What you really want to be able to do is get more specific and move up the application stacks, talk the language of the application managers, the developers, and explain to them exactly what's happening and where things are falling short, as opposed to I'm forwarding packets, not my problem. Yep. Meantime to innocence. I, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we call it meantime to repair when we talk about it in the reports, but it's actually meantime to it's not the network. Yeah. But, yeah. But yeah. not just walking away, you know, you know, washing your hands of the whole thing, but being able to much more clearly state why it isn't the network and what the problem probably is so people can actually get the problem solved and, as opposed to just walking away and, uh, you know, and giving up on the whole thing. But, yeah, so Bruce, exactly. there's, there's an architecture question I have here. So we just described this K, K Butler app and, and can visualize what it does. Where is it running? Is it running on a, on a Nokia switch? Yeah. So it runs alongside all the other processes. You onboard it using the same mechanisms that we use to onboard our applications. We have something we call App Manager, which you can kind of think of it like System D if you're familiar with like Linux, mm -hmm. Linux uh, init processing. So it runs exactly the same way our applications run. It gets defined the same way. It has its own Yang model that gets loaded into our management server and it gets lifecycle managed the same way. You can restart it. We'll actually restart it for you if it fails. You can define how bad a failure is. So you might decide, well, it's just providing state, so I really don't care. Or you could say this application is massively critical to how I operate my data center. If it fails, that's a cold failure of the switch. You need to, uh, to reboot to come up into some good known state again. So it looks and feels exactly like any other application on the switch. Are there practical limits to how big of an app I can run on Nokia switch? I, 
so oftentimes control plane, CPU sorts of things, they tend to be not very powerful and there's not a lot of resources here. So is that yep. uh, something I need to think about? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, within the bounds of whatever CPU is available on the Switch, for sure. We, you okay. know, these platforms are very cost constrained. So we do try to uh, hyper optimize the resources that are available. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're definitely going to run into that. But, you know, we have we have other SKUs that are more beefy in terms of CPU. Maybe they're acting in a spine role or, you know, a, a DC gateway style role, which have, you know, eight core hyper threaded um, CPUs on them. And, you know, a bunch of memory because BGP stacks, uh, if you have huge routing tables, can consume a lot of memory. So, yeah, I mean, there's resource constraints to, to factor in. But typically for most of the use cases we've seen to date, they no one's run into any resourcing problems. Got it. Okay. All right. So we talked about K Butler as, a, as an NDK use case. Let's talk about a second one here. This one we've got titled as Fumble slash Node MD. Lay it on us, mm -hmm. Bruce. All right. So this one uh, also providing some kind of simple operational context to help a network engineer as he's debugging the network, figure out where traffic has been dropped. So this was kind of the, the fumble use case, hence, hence the name. <laughs> um, and all it was really doing uh, is figuring out how much traffic is the switch receiving and how much is it TXing and then counting a bunch of things like, uh, you know, ACL hits and drops and having configurable thresholds that were all driven through its own data model through configuration transactions on when you want to alert. So rather than having, you know, all of this information, all the statistics I just, I just referenced being sucked off box and having this logic occur centrally for, you know, a data center that maybe has thousands of switches, you're offloading that processing to the device itself to figure out. And all you're listening for is one leaf that says, is there an issue? Yes or no. And the application is the one on device doing all this logic for you. So that was the fumble use case. NodeMD was a bit of an extension on this that just allowed some more kind of threshold crossing style alarms on, on more than just, you know, in, out and drops, and also allowed you to kind of monitor prefixes. So let's say you cared a lot about uh, maybe your DNS, maybe you're using Google DNS and you want to monitor those routes. So being able to locally determine their presence and to be able to set or you know flag somewhere in your data model that hey that route disappeared there's a there's a problem so it's kind of this whole process of uh, distributing some of the work you would do centrally and to push it closer to the edge because you have spare CPU cycles there for the most part and still get the information you need to the guy that's sitting in your operations center that's what these applications were trying to solve. What did I write? Fumble or NodeMD, and if I was writing, is this Python, and now it just sits there as a Python app, or is it something else? Whatever you like. This is the the beautiful thing about uh, protobufs. So the NDK is a gRPC service, or it runs a bunch of services. And so uh, the way you interact with it is using gRPC and protocol buffers. We uh, we actually have kind of some, some bindings that we publish uh, just using protocompilers for Go and Python, just to kind of like jumpstart development of those two, because that's what we see most people writing in. But any language that has a protocompiler, which pretty much any language that's actively being written uh, under the sun today has, um, you're able to write these applications and we don't, you know, bar which languages you have to use. Uh, you, okay, another thing just hit home for me, which is the flexibility here. We are citing three different use cases. We're talking about the second one, you know, the Fumble and NodeMD examples. But I could write anything. If I can pull the data off the box into a process, into my whatever the code is I've written, I can do anything. You just described this to the situation where uh, I want to know if this route falls out of the routing table. Well, that's, we've been able to do those sorts of things before, kind of scoped. But the point yep. is... 
I can do anything here that I want anything. as long as there's programmatic data that I can pull off the data models. Yep, exactly. That's why that whole model-driven management thing really starts to drive home here because we typically think of that as interfaces off device, right? So you have some kind of centralized collector, it's interacting with the node and it's sucking a bunch of data down and is doing something with it and inferring some conclusion. And sometimes, oftentimes that's a human that's doing that. They're looking at all this data and trying to figure out what the hell's going on on the network right now. So you can use those same model-driven interfaces on device and absolutely everything in our data model supports on-change telemetry. So you're not doing this rear view monitoring anymore. You're getting updates into that process immediately as something happens, the second that it happens. So your kind of your ability to react to things happening programmatically as well as the guys sitting in the operations center are much faster. And there's already been a bunch of customized processing that's occurred before that guy even sees the alert. Uh, there's a lot of power here. There's also some foot gun power here. Um, we could, because <laughs> we, we could make dumb decisions on the box if we wanted to and shoot ourselves in the foot is, is, is my point. But that's, that's, that's amazing. Actually, the, the, the ability to make any sort of a decision on box in reaction to unique things about our environment is, is really great and also really scary, but that is, that is really great. For us. <laughs> Yeah, indeed. And we will, we will, we have some protections that you can leverage. Of course, this is all based on Linux. So you have access to C groups, you have access to mm -hmm. kind of like partitioning resources. All of that's available. It's all customizable. So you you have, you know, gates that you can put these applications in to kind of ring fence them to make sure they play nice with the surrounding uh, application ecosystem that they're that they're living in. But of course, these are all tunable knobs, right? You could decide to give it all the resources if you wanted. So there's, there's a little bit of that, but I think we're seeing a, a, a trend where that's starting to become more of the norm, you know, more power, more responsibility, that, that classic quote. I think it's starting to apply more and more in data center as we try and breach that last frontier of automation, which is solving some of these really environment specific operational use cases. Hmm. I suppose architecturally, it's interesting too, because we've been emphasizing, hey, I can do all this cool stuff, rich functionality on box, and not have to dump everything to some central node for munging processing or whatever. But I could think of it this way too, Bruce, or at least I think I can. This is what I want you to confirm for me. I can do on box processing, munging, do something, and then take whatever I've munged and then send it somewhere central too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You just publish it to your own Yang model, which we can then stream out using our GNMI interface. So you get that proper... You, not just I can munge data and drop it into a log file or, you know, send a RPC off box somewhere. You publish it to the data model and then anybody who's connected to the device through the same APIs you're using to query BGP state can now see state for the specific application that you've written that maybe says there's an alarm because the drop threshold of in versus out was greater than 5%. And that 5% was something you configured using that same API, the same, uh, the same interacting with the same data model. So I just want to butt in here and say, like, some of this conversation is going off in a direction that's fairly esoteric. And if you're a certain type of person, the ability to do this sounds a bit weird. I don't want to build a model. I don't want to abstract these APIs. I don't want to build these sorts of things. But they are still very relevant in terms of Fabric Services System, right? Or FSS, as yep. it's sometimes known, right? Fabric Services System is the Nokia uh, software orchestration tool for data centers. And if I want fabric services system to talk to legacy VXLAN implementations, you need the ability to be able to uh, build models to do that and then to abstract them away, build the APIs and the code. These features are actually engines for which Nokia can build services that you want. It's not something that only weird, you know, that's fine for Google or that's fine for Azure type thing. This is actually mm -hmm. an, it got everyday purpose. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, as I said at the start, this is really the the framework in which we build our own solutions, which I, I think is what you were you're essentially saying. Mm, yeah. And these these use cases that we're that we've you know we've talked through, what we're finding is people write these applications and then they actually open source them. They just put them on GitHub. They're like, here's this cool thing I did using SR Linux mm. and the NDK. And so customers that aren't necessarily going to write the application, still have the ability to consume some of that functionality. And we absolutely have plans to enable Fabric Services System to pull from some of these kind of upstream repositories and drive the lifecycle management of applications in the Fabric. So, you know, if you wanted to run this uh, this K-Butler application on all your switches, because you see that as being useful for your use case, well, don't go and write it yourself. It's already already available. (laughs) (laughs) So... um, yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, I think that, they're the main that, adopters. Yeah, they, like the people who are using this every day are, are that's fine for somebody, right? Yeah. But if you're a more normal person, it also leaves Nokia the ability to actually do this for you. And that's what we're trying to highlight here is that this feature actually does enable a whole lot of features and flexibility that you don't really see in yep. other NOSes. Yeah, yep, exactly. Well, Bruce, there's a third use case here that we can talk about, which is this VXLAN uh, proxy idea. Although we were, we were prepping for the show, you said it's not, a, not exactly a proxy, but any, anyway, describe what this thing's all about for us. Yeah. So proxy is a, is essentially what it's doing. So imagine you've got kind of these two independent domains. One of them is a EVPN capable, uh, you know, control plane VXLAN implementation. And then you have kind of a legacy, maybe SDN controlled uh, implementation where you're statically building tunnels. So we had a customer that had a requirement to kind of bring these two domains together where the SDN controller doesn't want to talk to the EVPN side of the fence and the EVPN side of the fence is like, I'll talk to you, but you need to run EVPN. So what we ended up doing here was um, building an application that would run alongside SR Linux and just used an open source BGP stack because of course this was developed by, uh, by one of our professional services guys. And it would basically proxy the static VXLAN tunnels and create EVPN routes and then advertise them to the locally running BGP stack inside SR Linux. So I know that that, that sounds very complicated, but essentially you're listening to static VXLAN tunnels get provisioned on, uh, you know, another NOS. And based on that occurring, just using, you know, any kind of mechanism you can get to extract that off box, you're now then kind of munging that into an EVPN route that you're then advertising just using normal BGP to the local BGP stack, the one running inside SR Linux, and then controlling all of this using configuration provided by the NDK. So you've effectively stitched together kind of the legacy, kind of a you know statically controlled side of the world with this dynamic EVPN side of the world using this nice little lightweight BGP stack that is just you know accepting input in the form of tunnels being created and is then outputting EVPN routes for SR Linux to consume. I know we're describing it as a proxy, but but kind of not. It's not like data is flowing through this device. It's that the, the proxying is just uh, uh, on behalf of uh, EVPN. In this case, I'm going to create this uh, route for you and then announce it to BGP. So it's it's a proxy in yeah. that sense. Yeah, exactly. And this is something that would be like a, a vendor would typically say, "I'm sorry, we can't build that for you." Like that's such a specific use case to your environment. It's not good return on investment for the wider market, and uh, it's also pretty, pretty customized, right? Like uh, it would be relatively hard for us to include that in our own implementation. Like how would, how would we necessarily drive it? But a customer having the ability to do this themselves, to be able to stitch these two worlds in a way that 
is not only, you know, bringing the two worlds together, but doing it in a way that this little agent is now completely under the automation of SR Linux. Mm. So it has its own data model. You can, can interact with it using the data model. And it, it could go either way. It could be a temporary solution. So mm-hmm. you know, the environment's going to go to a cohesive, uh, unified EVPN fabric at some point, you know, and then this goes away. Or it could be you know, a long-term solution that just keeps getting tweaked a little bit uh, as long as these two differently operating fabrics that need to behave kind of as one uh, need to. You could go either way with that. Yeah, absolutely. If you decide you don't need it after a week, you can rip it out. No problem. The Yang model disappears. But if you need it long term, uh, you just said you know, you've got a Yang model for it. You can instrument it. You can monitor it. You can keep this thing going and kind of know what's going on uh, deep under the hood. So if you've got to live with it long term, because everybody knows anything temporary you do in networking is permanent, then uh, <laughs> then you can and not feel too badly about it. Yeah, exactly. You don't have kind of that whole unmanaged code thing. You know, in a year's time, the guy that was tailing the logs of this application has left. He's moved on to a, a brighter future and no one knows what those logs mean anymore. So in this case, you're still interacting with it the same way you interact with the, the rest of the system. So yeah, that, that uniform interface and driving it using kind of these discrete Yang models and having them pluggable is kind of the fundamental technology here that makes this all work. What is the NDK ecosystem like, Bruce? I, I, guess, I guess I mean community, really. Uh, if I'm trying to get my head around how to you know, develop for this thing, is there, is there a good support system? Yeah, I mean, it's still being ramped for for sure. Um, so a lot of the development that we're seeing done today is predominantly done by, you know, those those hyperscalers that we're referring to that are adopting SR Linux. And they, of course, you know, have the know-how, they have development resources, and they don't need a lot of hand-holding. But we definitely are starting to see the initial community form. I think there's, you know, we had initially like five or six applications. We're now above 20, I would say. There's some good documentation that's being built around it. Lots of like getting started style documentation. There's a bunch of libraries that are also being built around it and published to uh, to GitHub. So I think we're right on the cusp of, a, of you know, that snowball effect um, where pretty much anyone who wants to write an application is going to have access to the the tooling. We also have a, a, a Discord channel that uh, we have customers on. We have Nokia people on that we see a lot of people coming in asking questions around the public container image, around the NDK, around the CLI. So we're definitely hitting that point of, uh, of critical mass, I think. And then re- real talk, kind of going back to what Greg was saying earlier about quote unquote, normal people, people that maybe aren't up to their necks in development <laughs> because they've been more on the operation side of the house. Let's say I am an operator, Bruce, I, but I've been getting into automation and um, I started with the, the basics. Python you know, is my, my scripting language of choice, my coding language of choice. How approachable is the NDK for someone that's at that level? Um, Can I get into it or realistically, do I need to be an operator that's working with a developer that's going to write something for me? Yeah, I think, um, so we have two two kind of uh, Python style interfaces, if you will. One is, of course, that CLI, which if you're really just on the cusp of learning Python and you're writing, you know, scripts, that kind of thing a lot of what you're trying to do can be solved using the CLI. It still gets exposed into the CLI, at least. Maybe you can't do streaming telemetry from, from whatever you're doing. So you have kind of a simpler interface in the CLI, and that is very, very approachable, I would say. Very, very easy for someone who uh, has never written a line of Python in their life to look at it, look at the examples that are available, and either extend or write their own commands and plug them in. The NDK, I, I would say it's erring more on the side of a, a developer. That being said, mm-hmm. um, there's lots of people, you know, within Nokia that are getting their hands dirty writing these applications that have never developed before. So 
there's a learning curve around things like the, the fundamental technologies, right? You've got to, you're dealing with gRPC sessions. You're dealing with protocol buffers and knowing how to generate bindings from them. These are things that we're starting to solve for because we see an obvious demand. Like we need bindings for Python. They need to be available for people. Sure, people could go and figure out how to build them themselves using the protobufs, but let's remove that headache, right? So I think the uh, the tooling ecosystem specifically around Go and Python is, is pretty strong now, even for people who aren't, you know, full-fledged developers. But you're still dealing with these, I mean, relatively complex implementations of IPC, right? So you're still dealing with gRPC and protobufs and not knowing how they work is probably not going to get you very far. Oh, uh, but you... You're also making it easier, it says, at least going forward. You, what you're telling me is the NDK is going to become, you'll get to the point where some of the undifferentiated heavy lifting around bindings and so on. It sounds like you're going to hand me an object maybe or a method, and I'm just going to be able to work with that rather than have to build a bunch of code on the back end that creates some of those connections myself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm sure we'll eventually have an SDK for the NDK. It's <laughs> <laughs> only a matter of time, I think. And I think that's important because if you're going to be writing Python, you don't want to be writing everything, right? Most of us that live out here in the real world, we don't need to be writing Python libraries that do work for us and then actually then writing the Python that uses the libraries. We need um, we need other people to do those things. And it's viable to pay people for those. Like you can go and get a bunch of free Python libraries that do certain things that people do for you out of the goodness of their hearts and willing to share and that sort of stuff. But at some mm -hmm. point, there's a there's a bunch of really ugly work that has to get done um, in networking. And that's where it is better to pay for people to do things. And that's why, you know, we've talked to about a number of SDN products over the years. And I think over time, most customers will start to use their programming skills to operate fabric services system instead yep. of trying to emulate, like try to do what fabric services, it makes more sense to do something on top of FSS than it does to actually try and write something that is already existing and reinvent that wheel. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And this goes back to the whole, uh, the, the first point I made, right? It's around mm. how you build the software because you could just build it and expose an API. That's, that's mm. one way to do it. What we've decided to do is build a framework and then yep. build our functionality on top of the framework, but expose the framework. Like we yeah, want customers yeah. to be able to interact with the same objects, the same kind of abstractions that we are writing ourselves for our own development purposes. So both FSS and uh, and SR Linux and the NDK are developed with that in mind. Well, Bruce, thank you for a, uh, I would call it a mentally engaging uh, sort of a conversation where when you're used to doing networking a certain way, and now, as you say, automation is a bit of a solved problem, and uh, and then showing us how Nokia is doing it, the options that are there, it's mind uh, challenging, mind expanding, and, and I appreciate these kind of conversations, great stuff. Now, if people are uh, also similarly engaged as I have been, where would they go to find out more information? Yeah, so you can jump onto uh, Nokia.com and search for either SR Linux, or if you're more in the fabric services system realm, absolutely search for that too. Or we also have a, a bunch of content that's being published on uh, SR Linux.dev, short for development, and some more collateral that is developed, of course, on GitHub underneath the Nokia organization. Great places to go look. And Bruce, if I want to get that container so that I can start working with SR Linux, uh, will I find that under one of those places? Yeah, so the container image is on the GitHub container registry. So you can probably do a Docker pull uh, ghcr.io slash Nokia slash SR Linux, I think off the top of my head on your CLI screen if you're following along at home and you will pull down the latest version of that image. 
Perfect. Great stuff. Thank you again, Bruce. If you're listening to this, we thank you for sticking through to the end. If you want to dig into more about SR Linux, we did record heavy networking episode 559 back in, oh, that was January of 2021. You can get into the architecture more there and understand even more about what SR Linux is all about. Our thanks to Nokia for sponsoring today's episode. That is how we feed our hungry, hungry families. And again, <laughs> thanks to you for listening. If you do ping Nokia to ask them about SR Linux or the NetOps development kit, et cetera, make sure you tell you heard about it on the Packet Pushers podcast network. We are here at Packet Pushers for your professional career development, nerdy conversations for IT engineers. And if you want to get even more from us, we have even more to give you. Just visit PacketPushers.net to sign up for our newsletter, our Slack group, technical blogs, and more. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.